Amen and amen. Good morning to you. We're in Revelation chapter 3 this morning. Revelation 3, 1 to 6 this morning. The church of Sardis. We are currently in a study on the seven churches of Asia Minor, all located in Turkey. All seven don't exist today. Didn't heed the final warnings of each of these letters. Seven churches in the first century around AD 95 received seven letters and seven commentaries from Jesus himself written by the pen of John in AD 95 describing their church, areas that they needed to edit and change unless they faced the wrath and judgment of Christ. And we find ourselves in the fourth church. We have the fifth, I mean the, the fifth church. We have the sixth and seventh left this month. And just to give you a little bit of direction where we're going, I think uh, the first couple weeks in July, I want to do a little bit of uh, kind of some sketches of some people in church history. One in particular, Jonathan Edwards. I want to kind of uh, help you understand who he was in American evangelicalism. And he preached a sermon on July 8th, uh, 1741, that kind of catapulted the, the first great awakening. And so I want us to walk through that sermon. And because it falls on July 8th, we're going to look at the sermons called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. So I want to do a character sketch on Jonathan Edwards and a character sketch on, on Dawson Trotman, the 1st of July. And I think the two will help you understand uh, the significance of this church and the significance of what we're trying to accomplish. And then we'll work uh, a couple of different uh, texts in July. And hopefully by August, just to give you a little bit of update, we'll have onboarded our community pastor. We have a couple candidates that we're interviewing right now, and hopefully by August we'll be up and running there. We'll use kind of August as a month to recast some vision and get some direction. So it's going to be a fun summer just for our study as we finish up the, the, the section here in the book of Revelation. We do a couple character sketches, and maybe we might just kind of return to Revelation chapter 4 and just do a little mini-series on worship itself. I think that would be appropriate. So we'll just see what the Lord does. But I'm just giving you a little bit of indication where we're going. I know we're into the summer months. I know everybody's on vacation and that kind of thing. Uh, we wanted to make sure that you felt the full fury of the summer. We had no air conditioning on this morning. And so we just wanted to make you feel it, you know, and let you know we're here. It's arrived. And we'll get that fixed next week. Next week, uh, just so you'll know, we are meeting in the theater, right? In the auditorium. We'll enter on the back side. Um, they're going to be stripping and cleaning these floors for the summer. They're doing some maintenance in this room. And so they've moved us over to the theater. And um, so anyway, don't get too used to it. It's really nice. It's really new. And it has air conditioning, <clears throat> we hope, by next week. But uh, so a lot going on, just so you'll know. And I know you're on vacation, and we understand that as, as well. But we will be faithfully meeting every single Sunday, plodding through uh, the book of Revelation together. But we find ourselves in Revelation 3, 1 to 6. I put a banner over this one. I tried to think, uh, how, how could I describe this to you in a, sim a simple title or sentence? And, and this is what I came up with. A morgue with a steeple on it. A morgue with a steeple on it. Check it out. Look what John writes. To the angel of the church of Sardis write, he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars says this, I know your deeds, that you have a name or reputation that you are alive, but you're dead. Wow. Wake up. Strengthen the things that remain. 
which are about to die. For I have not found your deeds completed in the sight of my God. So remember what you have received and heard. Keep it and repent. Therefore, if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief. And you will know and you will not know at what hour I will come to you. But you have a few people in, this, in Sardis who have not soiled their garments and they will walk with me in white for they are worthy. He who overcomes will thus be clothed in white garments and I will not erase his name from the book of life and I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. And again, he concludes the letter. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Oh, the church of Sardis. Simple message. Wake up. They have a reputation, Jesus says, of being alive and vibrant. But they're actually cold, stiff, rigid, stale. And are dead, he says. And so what we learn from the church of Sardis is what it means to be a living, vibrant, healthy local church. They had become this oak and then it became hollowed out. It was this huge tree, a huge witness in Sardis. And then it got hollowed out. How can you have a dead church with the resurrected, sovereign, living Lord as senior pastor? It's craziness. This particular church, Sardis, has nothing good said about it. There's no good commentary. It's the only one of seven where nothing is attributed to them as a strength. What a sad commentary when a church sign out front is actually a tombstone rather than a bold edifice or a lighthouse or, or a steeple. When worship becomes cold and stiff and Everyone's going through the motions, but they have the reputation of being alive. A church, when you join it, they notify your next of kin, right? The church of Sardis has a, a storied history, which we'll see in a moment. But in 8095, no pulse, no life, no spiritual vital signs. They were just hanging on. They had been attacked by what we call nominalism. Nominalism had taken root where they're just going through the motions. They, of all churches, needed revival. When I speak of revival, it's not something we calendar or we even organize. Usually, what precedes revival is prayer, repentance of sin, and you'll know it's a revival because it will be absolutely unmistakable. Revival needed to set down in Sardis, and I would venture to say revival needs to set down among us as well. It's something we pray for on a regular basis. It's something you should pray for in your church. It's not something we can orchestrate or order, but it is something we pray for. And it will be marked by prayer and repentance. And we'll explore a little bit of that in July as we kind of look at some of the leaders in revivalistic movements in American history itself. So they have a reputation here in Sardis as being alive, but they were actually dead or in the process of dying. It's really a worst case scenario if you think about it. A worst case scenario when you're pastoring a church like Sardis 
it's the worst case because they think they're alive and they're not. That's the worst possible pastoring church you can possibly enter into as a pastor. When a church thinks it's healthy and it's actually not because you've got to convince them of their unhealth. And then you've got to actually get them healthy. They were secure. They were rich. And they were sound asleep as a church. And so the toughest criticism of all seven letters from Jesus comes to the church of Sardis. They lacked self-awareness. They had, they had actually dodged all the prevailing issues in the other seven churches as we've walked through. You, you, you've stumbled on a number of different areas that the other churches, the other seven, have struggled in. Some were um, enamored with false teachers and there needed to be some correction there. Uh, some had embraced the doctrine of the Nicolaitans or been acting like Jezebel, right? Some um, were being persecuted. Some the, uh, had embraced the emperor cult or emperor worship. I mean, they'd all struggled with a lot of things, not Sardis. Sardis had avoided all those things to the point it had become a point of pride. They're like, looking at the other seven, we're not that bad. And Jesus says, oh, you have a reputation that you're alive, but actually you're spiritually dead. You think you're okay. You think you're hunky-dory, but actually you are dead or dying. There are kind of three reasons why churches die or get stuck. First, prejudice. When prejudice enters a church where we don't want more people, we don't want to reach our community, and we specifically don't want that kind of people. That's usually kind of a death nail for a church. The second would be nominalism or complacency, um, losing your heart for, for, for doing good and honoring the Lord and living for the glory of God, right? Just getting enough to get by or just doing enough to, to get by. And the third is being stuck in tradition, unmovable, just having a reputation of something that God did in the past but really are not editing, not not changing, not transforming themselves. We've always done it this way before. It's kind of the mindset of a church that's stuck in tradition. So you have prejudice, nominalism, and being stuck in traditionalism. Those are the kind of typical three manifestations of a dead or dying church. They're in one of those categories, typically, axiomatically, right? Well, this church, Sardis, started strong. But a slow erosion has happened. And we're not quite sure where they're at. The text doesn't get altogether specific. In other words, are there now unbelievers? They're dead or they're believing unbelievers. Or are they believers who have just fallen into nominalism and they're just cold? They've lost their first love. It really doesn't give us that much clarity. But we know there has been a slow erosion in Sardis and a downward spiral has happened so much so that at one point they had a great reputation. They were known in the community and now they're dead. Sadly, Sardis was going through the motions and they were fooling everybody in the community except Jesus because you never fool Jesus, right? And we've seen from the past seven churches, this is the strongest assessment he has given out yet for a church. They claim to be alive, but they're actually dead. They're decomposing on the inside. On the outside, 
look pretty good, but on the inside, they're decomposing. So as we look at this text, we need to look at some context. What is going on? And we've done this with every church. We've kind of looked at the city first, and then we look at the church second, right? That's been our pattern. So let's talk a little bit about the city of Sardis. The city is an old city, seven centuries uh, before Christ is when it was established, seven centuries. So this is AD 95 when we're, we're getting this letter. It was the capital of the ancient city or kingdom of Lydia. Its famous king is King Croatius. The Greeks called him Midas. So it was a city that was built on a, on a high, high point, had three almost unscalable walls and one windy road to the top. And there was a nearby river which Midas discovered, or Croatius discovered, gold, right? And you've heard the old Greek myth, when someone has the what? Midas touch. This comes from Sardis. This comes from this particular letter. You have the Midas touch when things turn to, to gold, right? This is the Midas touch. And so when you thought of Sardis, and you were pastoring Sardis, it was a very wealthy city. They were very self-sufficient. And you're going to see that that's going to bleed over into their church because they could care for themselves and they didn't need any outside input. They didn't need Christ. They're just going through the motions, right? They're not dependent upon the Lord. They even used this phrase, the Sardis factor. It was synonym for wealth and success. That guy has the Sardis factor. He has the Midas touch. All right. So they're very self-sufficient, very wealthy. They're located about 50 miles east of, of Ephesus there, and they boasted of their impregnable compound. You could not get to them. They were just very difficult to get to, and so they boasted that they were invincible. It, it became a synonym for if you could penetrate Sardis and you could take down Sardis, it, it would be like doing the impossible. People would use that in the community. It was just an incredible thing until King Cyrus Caught them off guard one evening. The soldiers were asleep. Why? Because they were only watching the one main road. And he finally, King Cyrus, finally found some people that would climb this daunting vertical precipice straight up and, and, and basically attacked the city. And Sardis was conquered. And that was a huge problem. And they were asleep. Now, you're going to see all these Connection points in the text, right? They're supposed to what? Wake up. When they hear that, they also are familiar with their claim to invincibility and how one day they fell asleep and Cyrus conquered the city of Sardis, right? So one false move and the whole thing can go to pot. So the city's smug reliance and pride made them com comfortable, made them vulnerable, and it became their downfall. And that's exactly what goes on in the church, right? They are nominal. They are comfortable. They're going through the motion. They got into habit. And they're a mere shadow of what they should have been in their heyday at the time of this writing. And as the city gets conquered, so the church gets conquered by the devil by just introducing nominalism into it. And I'll tell you, nominalism is the, the best way to go for the devil. Why? Because he doesn't have to do anything. He just leaves the people to themselves, and they get comfortable. Their worship gets cold and root and just kind of going through the motions. And nothing really ever changes the world. A couple other points. 
They're known for, in industry, in their industry, they're known for, they discovered how to process and dye wool. And you're about to see the white garments here in the text. So everything that the letter comes to them, comes to them in context. It makes sense to them. They need to wake up. And if they wake up, they'll get the finest dyed wool garments, which they prized. It was, it was their cultural industry, right? This is what they had discovered, how to dye woolen goods. So we have always been faithful in our seven-letter study to describe the city and kind of give you a mental picture in the U.S., something you would be familiar with. So we said that Ephesus was like New York City. Smyrna was like Austin. Pergamum was like Washington, D.C. Thyatira in the Rust Belt, Cleveland. Sardis was, wasn't as like Pittsburgh. Pittsburgh would be the kind of picture. Once was, right, Iron City, strong ironworks, you know, and all that. And then you don't hear much from Pittsburgh, you know. Even the Steelers stink. You know, so you just don't hear a lot from, from, from Pittsburgh. You know, this is Sardis, right? They have a reputation that they're alive, but mm, they're dead. So what I want to do is walk through this text, move away from the city in the context, and move into the church itself to help you understand and really try to create for us kind of the ingredients for revival, for, for, for becoming alive when you're considered dead. So these are the essential ingredients for resurrecting dead churches. And if death and decomposition is in the cards, then this text is written so that all of us can learn from Sardis never to claim life when we're actually dead and to maintain our life and our vibrancy, right? And so Sardis was living in the good old days. They get a knock at the door. They receive this letter from the Lord Jesus written by John. And the first of the four ingredients is this. Jesus holds every church in his hand. First thing you need to remember about every single local church and every expression of a local church and every expression of the gospel is that Jesus grips every church in his hand and no one fools Jesus. We can fool each other, but no one fools Jesus. So as you know, with each letter comes an opportunity for Jesus to establish relationship and the right to speak to them. And also, every letter is written not only for the church of Sardis, but for us to eavesdrop on their situation and say, uh-oh, we don't want any of that, right? And so Sardis needed to concentrate on a certain element of Jesus' character and of his ability. And so the text says, to the angel of the church of Sardis, that would be the pastor, receives the letter. To the angel of the church of Sardis, write, he who has the seven spirits of God. Stop right there. It's two elements. Jesus possesses the seven spirits of God. In other words, he has the ability to make a divine assessment. This does not mean there are seven Holy Spirits. We know there's only one Holy Spirit in the Trinity. As Ephesians 4.4 states, what it is a reminder of is that Jesus gifts the church with the Holy Spirit. Jesus is the one that dispatches the Spirit. And so what John does here is he uses symbolism to describe the power of the Holy Spirit and the perfecting work of the Holy Spirit in the churches. The number seven is a reminder of the fullness 
right? Of the perfection, of the totality of the Spirit's work. Without the Holy Spirit, the church is impoverished. The Holy Spirit is absolutely critical for the health of any local church. Remember, the church was birthed at Pentecost with the coming of what? The Holy Spirit. We, we can't underestimate the role of the Holy Spirit in the life of the church. Over and over again in the epistles, you'll hear things like, don't grieve the Holy Spirit. Don't quench the Spirit. The Spirit's role in the local church is absolutely critical. So Jesus is simply saying, and he's borrowing it from Revelation chapter 1, he's simply saying that they are in desperate need of the Spirit's work. They have a reputation they're alive, but it's as if they grieve the Spirit or quench the Spirit so much so that they're actually dead. And they need to have life breathed in them by the Holy Spirit to ignite their hearts, to energize their worship, to grant them repentance. It's absolutely critical to have the Spirit. They needed new life. They needed revival. And that's through the Holy Spirit. He is the divine prerogative, right? Zechariah 4, 6 states, not by might, not by power, but what? By my spirit. So the growth and the health and the expansion and the vibrancy of any local church is its dependency on the spirit. This church is on life support. It needs to look to Jesus to dispatch the Holy Spirit who has everything you need and can be accomplished by the Spirit's work. It's a divine gift. It's granted to the church to have the Spirit. Again, we don't calendar revival. It's a work of the Spirit. And so we have the totality. You need the fullness of the Spirit, the number seven. And then he says, Jesus holds the seven stars. The seven stars are the seven pastors. And he holds them in his right hand, the place of honor. It's also a reminder of strict accountability. He holds and controls his under-shepherds. Listen, resurrection and revival in dead churches start at the top with leadership. Churches rarely go beyond their leaders. Right? Hosea, like pastor, like people. A church's condition is the leader's responsibility. And so he begins there by reminding them he is the one who dispatches the spirit and he's the one that controls the under shepherds and controls the pastors. And so with the full power of the Holy Spirit, starting with the leadership, King Jesus can resurrect any dead church and he can bring life to a dying church and he can bring revival at his will. And so we have to recognize that Jesus dispatches the spirit and holds the pastors, and that's how he intros into this stiff message to the church of Sardis. So Jesus holds the local church. He grips the local church in his hand. Second ingredient to life and to vibrancy and revival, Jesus hates dead religion. Jesus hates dead religion. They were blinded by their religious activity, right? They were carrying on uh, business as usual. It was a problem. In the words of Paul to Timothy, they were holding a form of godliness 
although they deny the power thereof, which is born of the Spirit. You know, amazingly, this church, Sardis, paralleled the city, did it not? I mean, the city was once vibrant and alive and thriving and impenetrable, and then it is taken down. Same with the church, right? There was a time when the church was killing it and strong and healthy. But now, only formally, they call themselves Christian. Somewhere, they jumped the shark. Overconfidence set in. Apathy took over, probably because they weren't persecuted. False teachers had not embedded themselves in the congregation. There was nothing to fight. And so they just kind of slithered into nominalism. They were no longer expository doers. They were hearers. They were going through the motion. And again, the devil is perfectly content with nominalism. Right? But they were no longer breaking down strongholds. They were no longer setting captives free. They were no longer this brilliant, bright light there in, in Sardis. It's even hard to know what they were. He says, I know your deeds, that you have a name that you are alive, but you are dead. It's hard to know. I mean, are they believing unbelievers, meaning they believe the truths of the gospel, but they're not Christians? Or are they nominal Christians just drawn cold, gotten tired, and nominalism now owns them? I don't know. It's hard to know in the text as you study it. But I can tell you this, Jesus had nothing good to say. And so he starts out with this stinging rebuke that you're giving off a stench, a stench of death. That is so crazy because that's not what churches are about. That's not what churches should be doing. He says there in, in, in verse one, you are dead. You're dead. You, you have become like the Sadducees and like the Pharisees. That's why I read Matthew 23. I wanted you to feel what it was like to, to, to go through the motions of religion. Jesus hates dead religion. It's marked by, by dry rot and sleepiness and, and just unbelievable apathy, right? Living in yesteryear. This is the problem with them. And they had found themselves deluded and polluted as a people. They were marked by dead preaching, right? Eloquence without unction. They were marked by dead worship. They had no awe, no wonder in what they were singing. They were marked by dead ministry. They were going through the motions, just program after program. And, and, and they were trying to get maybe accuracy, but there was no life. There was no vibrancy. They weren't hacking off the devil. They weren't making a dent in the community. They weren't being salt in life. They weren't making a huge difference. They weren't even the, getting the, the devil's attention. But they did get Jesus' attention because they had a reputation that they were alive and they were actually dead. And it is a strong reminder that to all of us that Jesus can't stand religion. It's got to be true worship, worship of the true Savior and the Lord Jesus Christ. But cold, comfortable, lackluster, religious activity doesn't get anyone's attention. It's dead. It's boring. It's lifeless. It gives off the stench of death. That smell reached the nostrils of Christ all the way in heaven in AD 95. And it's a strong reminder that he hates dead religion. Third. Jesus calls all churches to wake up. He calls all churches to wake up. Look at verse 2. 
wake up and strengthen the things that remain which are about to die for I have not found your deeds completed in the sight of my God. Wake up. Well, again, you know the context. They'd fallen asleep. They'd claimed that you couldn't penetrate their sisters. They claimed that you couldn't take down Sardis. And then one day, Cyrus, King Cyrus, does it. And so what does he do? He levels a stinging rebuke in their own memory and says, you need to wake up spiritually. You need to have some urgency. The implications for their actions. They needed to, to wake up. And then he says, and he kind of walks through these five kind of five imperatives in staccato form. He says, first, let's look at them. Wake up. Admit something's wrong. They, they, they needed to kind of have some spiritual smelling salts, like a boxer. And they needed to stick those up their nostrils and kind of get alert. There's urgency here. They're dying. They needed to wake up. This is the strongest of rebukes of all seven churches. Soldiers asleep on duty, saints asleep at church. This is a problem. He says, wake up. Second, he says, they're strengthen the things that remain, right? Engage in the spiritual disciplines. Finish the job. Return to where you left off. Similar to the church of Ephesus, right? Remember, right? Repent. And redo, this is the redo piece. Strengthen the things that remain. Return to what uh, you, where you left off. Do at least the minimums and walk through the spiritual disciplines. Stop with the tiny prayer. Stop with the carnal living and re-engage. Strengthen the things that remain. Third, he says, be vigilant. Look what he says. So remember what you've received and heard. Alert, vigilant. Remember when you left the straight and narrow. Remember the transforming power of the gospel. Remember what the gospel did in your lives. Remember God's powerful grace in your life. Fourth, he says, and keep it or obey. Hold on, right? Be faithful. Obey the scriptures. Follow the Lord. Don't just be hearers, but doers of the Lord. And fifth, Imperative, he says, repent. Keep it and finally there, verse three, repent. Get with the program. Do a 180. From wherever you're at, do a 180. Move away from sin. Do an about face spiritually. Repent of your apathy. Repent of your lethargy. Run to Jesus. We are to be a people marked by repentance. Proverbs 6, 23, as a way of life. And so he says, listen, you have a reputation that you're alive, but you're dead. And then he says, here's what you've got to do. Here's what revival looks like in your, in your midst. You need to wake up. You need to strengthen the things that you were doing at one time and rekindle those. You need to remember where you left off. And you need to obey and you need to repent. It's always the same thing. And I'll tell you, all of this must precede any revival of heart, whether that's localized or corporate in nature, whatever, you've got to wake up, you've got to remember, and you've got to repent. That is the bottom line. That's the message of Sardis, and it's the message to us. But what if we don't? What if we don't wake up? Well, look what he says there at the end of verse 3. 
Therefore, if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come to you. He's going to come. It's not the second coming he's referencing. It's coming in judgment, unannounced, unexpected, unlimited. Jesus will show up, and he'll blow out your lampstand. Again, not a reference to the second coming. It's a reference to judgment. What a frightening thing. He tells them, you think you're alive, but you're dead. If you don't get your act together, I'm going to blow out your lampstand. And I'll just give you a little bit of context there. If you were to visit, visit Sardis today, there is not one known believer today, June of 2018, in Sardis. 99% of Sardis is Muslim. And he said, if you don't get your act together, I'm going to blow out your lampstand. It's true of all seven churches. All seven churches in Asia Minor don't exist today. Why? Because they didn't repent. They didn't wake up. They didn't remember when they had fallen. And this is a reminder to all of us that there needs to be spiritual alertness with us. We've got to get our game on. We should be aware of falling. We should beware of lethargy. Beware of nominalism. Ambivalence is a real soul killer for any church. Fourth and final, I want you to see that Jesus rewards faithfulness, though. He rewards faithfulness. Look at verse 4. But you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. Well, there's some good news. There's a few. Always a remnant, a core group of faithful folks who are alive, who are spiritually vibrant, but clearly not the majority, right? Who have not polluted their garments, have not stained or dirtied their garments. It's a reference to one's character. They've not grown complacent. They've not compromised. And it's a reminder that God always has a witness, right? And he will reward faithfulness. And then he describes how he will reward their faithfulness. And it's words that they would appreciate and words that they would know in Sardis. Why? Because they discovered how to dye wool and to make it pure white. This is why it meant so much to them. It's really a reference to the perseverance of the saints. He says, first off, you'll be clothed with white garments. Remember, Sardis is known for their industry. White garments is a reference to their purity, that they remained unstained, that they are truly redeemed. It would be worn, Revelation 19, at a time of celebration. You will be clothed in white garments. Second, you'll have a permanent record of your faithfulness. He says at the end of verse 5, he who overcomes will thus be clothed in white garments and look at this, I will not erase his name from the book of life. It's a double negative. I will never, ever blot out the name. There's a reference to this book, Revelation 17, 8, Philippians 4, Psalm 49. It's a reference to permanency. When you give your life truly to Jesus Christ, your name is written in there. And he says, listen, the perseverance of the saints, I will never, ever, it's a double negative, I will never, ever Blot out your name if you remain faithful. It's not a reference to him taking someone's salvation from them. It's just a reminder of the permanency of that relationship. It's a positive promise 
of him saying, listen, if you remain faithful, you will truly be one of my followers and truly are a believer. And there'll be a heavenly confession next. Look at five, the end of five, five verse uh, five C. And I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. Advocacy, right? A heavenly confession. They'll have Christ's advocacies. You confess Christ in this life, Christ confesses you before the Father that you're his, that the blood of Christ covers all of your sin. If you lack courage, if you are ashamed, Matthew 10 says that he will not confess you before the Father's. You're manifesting that you're not truly a believer. If you know Christ, he will stand for you. If not, God help you. That's basically what he's saying. And so it, it is so worth it to follow Christ. It's so worth it to repent of your sins. It's so worth it to be awake and alive and vibrant and full of Christ. And for them, that meant they get a new garment. For them, that means their name was permanently etched in the book of life. And for them, that means that Christ would confess them before the Father. In conclusion here, we learn some things from Sardis. We learn that you can have a reputation that you're alive, but actually be dead. Kind of scary, right? You can be numb to Christ. We can be apathetic. We need to learn not to be a morgue with a steeple on it. That we need to be alive and, and vibrant. It's, to me, a reminder of, of praying for revival, that God would make much of a little group of people in Bargetown, that whatever people would know about us, they'd know that we're alive and we're on fire for the Lord and we're, we're making much of Jesus Christ, right? We don't want to soil our garments. We don't want to have a reputation that we were once alive a couple years ago, but now we're dead and lifeless. We want to keep on going, right? We want to avoid complacency and avoid uh, ambivalence. And he says in verse 6, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. We need to hear. Not just hearers, but being doers of the word. And so the question comes before us, are you going through the emotions? Right? Are you like a big oak that's just hollowed out on the inside? You, you, you have the appearance of life, but really dying or dead, right? Do you need to wake up? Maybe you are a Christian here, but you're just slipping. And it's, just, it's a slippery slope. You're just slipping into nominalism. And you need to resist that and wake up and repent and go back and start doing some of the things you did before and walking through the same spiritual disciplines, and as a church, we need to ask ourselves, are we alive and are we healthy and are we vibrant and are we contagious and do people want to be a part of us? Are we praying for revival? Are we repenting towards revival? And I'm telling you, when God shows up, he will change the world from this little church. I'm telling you. He delights in changing the world from, from a little church. He delights in using ordinary little things to make a huge difference in the world. We need to resist nominalism. We need to fight for vibrancy and wonder and awe. And we need to heed the message of Sardis. 
that we do not want to be and have a reputation that we're alive, but we're actually dead. This is the message from the word of God. Revelation 3, verses 1 to 6, the letter to the church of Sardis, to us here, the church at Bardstown. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for the message to Sardis and its implication on our lives and on our ministry. Lord, I pray that you would help us to wake up, to strengthen the things that remain, to resist nominalism, to do the deeds that we did at first, to remember what we have been entrusted with and what we have received from the Lord, to obey, and Lord, most of all, to repent. Lord, I pray that you would send us revival, that we'd not find ourselves in the predicament of the church's Sardis, boasting, self-sufficient, thinking nobody can get to them. And one day in AD 95, they get a letter saying they, they had a reputation that they once were alive, but now they're dead. May that never be true of us. May we be a living, vibrant, healthy expression of the gospel here in Bardstown, Kentucky. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.